Hi there. Welcome to Gutwein Law's first ever podcast episode. Throughout this series, we'll discuss anything and everything related to business law. We'll do our absolute best to cover hot topics within our industry and even have a few interesting guests on the show from time to time. But before we get too far into this, I wanted to quickly introduce myself. My name is Sean McCarthy, and I am not only the Marketing and Brand Experience Manager at Gutwein Law, but now our impromptu podcast host. So with that said, I want to be the first to thank you for listening. As I mentioned previously, we want to cover all types of topics related to business. And today, we want to focus on the topic of business in sports. At the time of recording this, there are about 200 top athletes just down the street from us. These are athletes participating in the NFL Combine. And a lot is getting ready to change for them. They're going from being the best athletes on their college teams to competing with other top athletes from around the country. But they're not just going to be competing for a place on the field. They're going to be competing for off-the-field dollars as well. And so today, we're going to discuss the transition athletes make from the collegiate level to pros. The name, image, and likeness that's associated with that are also known as NILs and how the recent NCAA decision to allow student-athletes to be compensated may impact all of this. With me today to discuss these topics are two members from our sports practice area team, Josh Schaub and Wes Circle. Hey, guys. How you doing, Sean? Appreciate hey, how you doing? Thank appreciate you. getting this started and getting us off the races here. Yeah, absolutely. So before we dive in, I just want you guys to really quickly introduce yourselves, talk about what kind of law you practice, who your clients are, and what you bring to the table in terms of this conversation. Josh Schaub, I practice sports law, primarily representing leagues and teams um, in their the business of sport as we're about to talk about today, making sure that they're set up from a governance perspective to create profit and money and really operate leagues and create a product. So in my certain case of particular leagues, 12 different entities coming together, creating a product, agreeing on how that product will be presented to the public, and then hopefully creating a profit at the end of the day. I also have a general corporate practice, which I think helps feed into that practice, the sports law practice as well. Yeah, hi, I'm Wes Zirkel. Um, started my career representing celebrities and still I do a fair amount of that. My practice is primarily business-related in terms of the business of sports. So that includes sponsorship, you know, marketing, activation. That includes representing athletes, but not in per se as an agent like you think of that, but more in representing their their entities themselves as a walking, talking corporation, which they often are. And then also I represent uh, a number of, of teams as well, particularly in the motorsports space, uh, where obviously in Indianapolis has spent a lot of time there. So that's me in a nutshell. Awesome. Well, thanks again, guys, for being here. Um, I just want to get this kicked off. So as I mentioned in the intro, we've got several hundred athletes just right down the street today who are starting the NFL Combine and are quickly becoming the best athletes at their colleges and now looking to hopefully go into the pros. And so as sports attorneys, what can these athletes expect as they make that transition? I'll kick it off. I mean, they're going to be hit with expectations like they never had in college. And I know there's a lot of arguments out there that Division One players are already are acting like professional athletes, but the mix is going to be the same. Their life is going to transform into a 7 a.m. to whatever time at night, total focus on playing football versus some of the other distractions. The big thing I think that is also going to come into play is that they're going to be money-making machines for an employer. 
they may have felt like it in college, but they're never going to feel like it now they do now. They're also going to be subject to a collective bargaining agreement, which is going to be completely different than what they've experienced before as well. And also pressures and expectations regarding money, how to spend money, where to spend money, how not to spend money. I think Marshall and Lynch recently in the playoffs just talked about protecting their chicken. And it's become very real for the athletes here as they move forward. And as they look forward to the draft, understanding, and they talk about their stock value. And when it comes to ownership groups and how they view their employees as athletes, sometimes they view them as stock. And are they up? Are they down? What's the value of that stock? So on and so forth. So um, they need to be cognizant of a lot more things in regards to these next five years of their life and how they treat it will have financial impacts far um, exceeding those five years. So um, just extreme focus on their financial worth in the next five years is something they're going to have to be cognizant of. No, and I agree. And what I can expect is they're going to be wholly unprepared for that. Even the very best athletes who have top advisors, it is a different uh, paradigm to think of yourself as a business versus an athlete. They have spent their entire lives playing a game, whether it be, you know, in this case, football or basketball, what have you. And they're trying to be the very best they can be at that skill so that they can eventually go make money. Now they're here. Now what? And they have an agent, hopefully a good one. They probably said, you need a lawyer, you need an accountant. And the old joke is you need a lawyer to watch that accountant. And, you know, there's now a team that's, and the cost is growing. And the truth of the matter is most of these athletes will have, one, no interest in any of that. They just want somebody to, quote, take care of it all. And two, no time. And so there is, on top of, as, as Josh correctly said, they are now an, an employee for somebody who has high expectations. They now have to take care of themselves as a business and frankly, probably make most of the money they'll ever make in their lives. Now that will be obviously be different for some, some of the select few, which we all know about, but the vast majority of these people that are down the street today have three to five years. Okay. If they're, if they're healthy and they will make 10 to $15 million during that period. And if they're smart, that will set them up for the rest of their lives. But they need to be smart so they can expect a lot of competing uh, challenges and a lot of competing interests I mean, even amongst what they even want to spend their time on during the day. So everything's about to change. Just to add some of that real quick, I represent a professional baseball league and I've worked in baseball for 10 years in various capacities. The one thing athletes tell me the transition from college to pro is really interesting is when you're in college, someone's telling you what to do all the time. And so when they get in the off season now, uh, after the season's over and they're off the road and whatnot, it's on them to take care of themselves and feed themselves and whatnot. They don't have training tables. They don't have tutors. They don't have their coaches with their schedule laid out for the week. It's all on them at this point. And I think that's a big transition for athletes if they, in fact, don't have the right advisor or surround themselves with the right people. So those players over at the Combine right now, I think, are transitioning into the world where they have to take care of themselves and prepare them to go to work every day. And that, that'll be different for them. No, I agree completely with that. And we'll add to that, and I know we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this, but there will also be an opportunity to do things outside of, of the team itself. Obviously, there's now a collective bargaining agreement in place. And, and what's going to be very unusual for these people to think about is that as part of a collective unit, they are giving up rights that they naturally own themselves. And they're assigning that up to a group of faceless people who now have the right to make jerseys and t-shirts and billboards and also and they have zero control over it mm -hmm. 
And that's going to be a shock. And then, and then they may find that it could be a great opportunity to do something. And guess what? You can't do that because the team has that right or the league has that right. And so they're going to learn things like what an exclusivity matrix is and where else they can make money. And so they're also part, like I said, there's, a, there's now a labor union they're part of, and it's going to really kind of change things for them on a fundamental level. I just have kind of a nuanced response to that. I would argue that a lot of athletes over there have been exploited for at least the last three yeah. years, and universities have been using their name, image, and likeness for free. At least now they're going to get a check for it <laughs> when someone exploits them going forward. No, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. We'll get yeah, into that shortly. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about name, image, and likeness yeah. and the transition. So we talked about jerseys. We talked about sponsorships. What do some of those agreements look like mm. from a player standpoint? Well, so first of all, like I said, there is a collective bargaining agreement that allows uh, the Players Association, for instance, to license um, their name, image, likeness. So let, let's drill down a little bit of what that is. You know, if you hear about the news, they abbreviate it now NIL. It's more formally known as a right of publicity, which is a state-based right that every single person in the United States has to control the commercial use of their image, their photograph, their voice their distinctive appearance, you know, and in that regard, think of Marilyn Monroe and her skirt blowing up over the, 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 the grate, the subway grate, that is her distinctive appearance and that is protectable. Uh, and so that is the origin of the right. It's an actual legal right um, that they have. And, and so in that regard now, they have assigned that right to the Players Association who, depending on the rules, gosh, I haven't looked at the NFLs, but I know that MLBPA, for instance, has the right over three or more athletes together. And, and they can license that and they can make those approvals. And so, uh, Sean, I've honestly forgotten your original question, but the, that's basically the origin of the, of the NIL and, and kind of the commercial aspect of it that they have. And again, the, 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 the league will have rights to it, the teams will have rights to it, and they'll have very little access to it. If I could just add to that, too, I think last time we also represented a uh, baseball lifestyle company, so a lot of T-shirts and, and material. We did work with MLBPA regarding the name, images, and likeness. And I can tell you that MLBPA and I think the Players Association of all leagues do a very good job of protecting the likeness of their players because they want to make sure they get paid for it. Hmm. That's very clear. And, and so the negotiations on that deal, once my particular client, our client, uh, obtained two promotional players, I think they called them signature players, mm -hmm. that's when the PA stepped in and said, now we're gonna, you have to sign with us to be able to represent more than two players. And I think that's really interesting. It's something that people aren't aware of out there, the PA's role in a lot of those uh, negotiations. Mm -hmm. That's right. So yeah, it's obviously a big business. So, uh, you know, apart from the players, who's all involved in these deals? Who makes money? Um, hopefully our clients make money. And that's our goal. And I can think of a couple of deals that actually fell apart because a certain percentage of royalties had to go to the PA, the player's going to get a cut, and then we're, we're left with the, the margins at the end of the day. So you're hoping that your client first, our clients make money on whatever the deal is, promote, using the player as a promotion for the product. The player's going to make some money. The agent's going to make some money. And in fact, the player's association at the end of the day is probably going to get a little chunk somewhere. Um, and so that's absent the team's role in any type of promotion as well. That's just simply the case where our clients are contacting a local professional athlete and say, will you promote our product? And I'll take the example of a car dealership um, asking the local NFL wide receiver to come down and promote their speedy deals or whatever it may be. 
um, there's a cut of money going to multiple parties, mm-hmm. not just that player. And, and let me also now talk about that from the, say, a commercial licensing standpoint. And I'll use a real example because I want to refer to it later when we speak to college. So I was one of the many lawyers uh, who were involved back in the day of negotiating EA's license with NASCAR and the various teams. So this is for NASCAR Thunder. can't remember what year it was. Call it, say, 2001, something like that. So that dates me. Um, so when you put together a deal like that, EA can afford to spend 15% on royalties and still do the deal. Okay, so within that 15%, all of the rights holders have to get paid. Okay, NASCAR got 2% because they're NASCAR. That is the cost of using the NASCAR bars, non-negotiable, 2% off the top. Well, now all of the, think about, you know, this is the, this is the, the nerdy legal stuff. All of the cars represent trade dress and carry trademarks of those auto manufacturers. They have to get paid. That is accomplished through the teams. Okay, so you pay for trade dress and trademarks. So you cut deals with all of the teams who, depending on their individual license, either have to pay the car manufacturer or not, depending on what was happening back in the day. And then you have 43 drivers that also get a cut. So I represented at the time uh, an extremely popular driver, and I don't remember exactly the percentage, but let me say with, with some accuracy, I think his royalty was 0.2345% or something like that. It went to like five digits, but it was under 1%. Because by the time you get what's left over for the for the athletes, in this case drivers, there's very little left for them. Right? So then it ends up being a promotional piece. And they participate because it's good for them, it's good for the league, it's good, you know, and so there are parameters to what people can do and still make money off of this. And the people, frankly, cutting the checks dictate that. In this case, video game company, EA, says, we can do this and still do the deal. Do you want to do it? Right? So that's a, that's a real example of, of how a licensing deal might work and how, say, the players don't necessarily get what you think they should get. Yeah. And I think that's a great segue into you talked about the different entities getting cut money. Yeah. A lot of these deals don't get done. So our clients come to us and say, I'd like to have this person promote our product. And after, after you start chopping away, mm-hmm. well, it gets paid. They don't work. The other thing I would add is local deals, which I described with the car dealership. It's not a lot of money for players. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, people, I think, see professional athletes on TV promoting some product. I can If it's local, there's not a ton of money behind this. And we're going to talk about college athletes coming up in regards to, I think this is a little overblown in terms of who's going to get paid and how much, and this is going to destroy amateur athletics. On the national level, um, you'd be surprised how little money there is for athletes as well. I've, I've uh, represented in the hockey industry some people that you look at the brand that was behind them and you think there's big money going to the athlete. It was like a trade deal for product. And <laughs> so they're out there like in commercials or being promoted as you know, a signature athlete for this brand, and there's literally zero cash being exchanged. Um, people would be surprised. There's not as much money out there because you think about it. Let's say we take an athlete, Troy Polamalu, selling head and shoulders. And Troy Polamalu says, well, pay me $2 million to promote this product. Head and shoulders or Procter & Gamble, if they're the, the company behind it, has to do an incremental sale of head and shoulders, 8 million bottles because their margins are so slim on each bottle, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. So... It's a misnomer to believe or a misconception to believe that there's so much money being paid to these athletes to do the promotional material. If you're LeBron James, Michael Jordan, yeah, those guys are making tons of money. 
But below that high-level A-grade athlete, there's not a ton of being paid for to, to promote products. Right. So I think we've we've danced around this quite a bit. Um, but let's talk about the NCAA and their recent decision to pay student athletes or allow them to be paid. Um, as we mentioned, the NCAA headquarters is just right down the street from us. Um, and this has been an ongoing conversation for a very long time. And so I want to ask you two, what do you think has been the hesitation on their end to make this decision? Well, I think the hesitation is, and we'll, we'll get into this, is that nobody is really prepared for what this really means. Um, the, once you introduce, let's, let's be candid, a kid, into the same marketplace that LeBron James plays in, you open up so many issues that have to be addressed. It would be negligent not to address in many things we'll talk about. But the question comes to whose responsibility is it? And I do want to correct something. I would, I would say the NCAA has not decided to do this. I think they've acquiesced to the fact that it's inevitable. Um, and I have had um, conversations with friends of mine at the NCAA, and there's a, there's a, there's a large amount of genuine concern. And they understand things are changing. They understand the political climate is changing. But their hesitation has been entirely about protecting the welfare of the athlete and and, and preventing some of the things that, that can happen. So you didn't ask me this, but I know, I know it's got to be on your mind. How'd this happen, right? Well, I think this happened because of incredible misconceptions that what Josh said isn't true and what Josh said is true. There's not a lot of money to be made, but politicians think there is. They think that that a kid who's a star running back for a collegiate football team, that because his picture appears on a video board and people love him, that that translates into uh, untold wealth that he's being cheated out of. And again, when you look at the business model of sport, that's just not true. Okay, so I think what's driving that is a is a is a is a misconception. I think to add to that too, there will be a select few athletes in the NCAA that would capitalize on this to a decent amount of money. And I really personally fall on both sides of this issue. I understand the NCAA's quandary and their hesitance regarding this issue. You're talking about. 17 to 22 year old kids that may not have representation that may be exploited that will have disparate treatment among athletes within an athletic department that you know maybe football players are being paid the gymnastics team's not being paid and it'll just create further division in terms of the haves and have nots and competitive balance throughout the ncaa and and speaking of we represent professional leagues that's the thing that gives leagues values one brand and what the brand looks like the quality of your athletes is why we have division one two and three quality of your athletes, the quality of their facilities, what your marketing looks like. The second one is equal application enforcement of the rules, which the NCAA has how many pages is their rule book. Mm -hmm. It's crazy trying to apply that many rules equally among the board. And third is that the outcomes of the games are in doubt so that when the season starts, you don't know who's going to win the championship that year. I think the introduction of money from outside parties could sway where athletes go to play. So for instance, California, I think was the first state that came out and said that we authorize this. And there's a great fear. All the top athletes are going to run to California and try to capitalize on the name, image, and likeness. So the NCAA has an issue if they don't acquiesce that the playing field 
for their teams is going to be completely unbalanced for the most part. So that's an issue I side with the NCAA on. On the other token, on the athlete side, you know, free market bears fruit. And I heard an argument one time, which I thought was very compelling, where an attorney representing the players noted that Cam Newton wore 17 logos on the field during the national championship game he played in. 17 logos, and nobody paid Cam Newton for that, but all those companies were profiting, Under Armour being the big one that represented University of Auburn. The only people capitalizing were the NCAA, the coaches, the administrators that got Cam Newton on campus to do that. So that said, I can see both sides of the issue. I understand the quandary on each side, but inevitably culture is changing and something needs to change. I just, I think the fear is overblown out there of what this will do to amateur athletics. Well, and I want to add to that because Josh brought up an excellent point and I'll, I'll go one step further. This is a very difficult issue to address because everybody is right. From their point of view, everybody is right. From the NCAA's point of view, this threatens amateurism as we know it. From an athlete's point of view, this is depriving them of some money. I have talked to athletes who have said, I can't get a summer job because it calls my amateurism into question. There's a lot of very complex issues. And, and I want to kind of introduce a couple of things. So first of all, just to be clear, it may sound strange for those who know me, but I would describe myself as a celebrity rights advocate. So I started my career representing celebrities. I believe to my core that everybody has the right to control how they are commercialized. Now, I said I might use an analogy that may be a bit crude, but I'll look at it this way. The legal drinking age is 21. We do that for a reason. We think that by and large, when you're 21, you're able to handle drinking. We could make the legal, the legal drinking age 16, and there are some 16-year-olds that could probably handle it, but the vast majority cannot. And so I would kind of analogize it in this way is that I think there are probably some collegiate athletes who could handle this. I think the vast majority of them are woefully unprepared. And so my overarching concern with this is I have yet to hear sort of, if you will, what the strategic plan is for allowing commercial use of NIL in college athletics. I don't know what the overarching driving goal is for this. And I've not heard anybody being able to articulate that. And so my default proposition is protection of the student athlete. Right, and, 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 and we can talk about more as it, it, as it becomes relevant, but I'll tell you, when I represent a professional athlete, and I'm now talking about somebody with substantial means, I'm a general counsel, so I sit at the center of this wheel of advisors that include insurance agent, that include a personal wealth manager, that include an entertainment lawyer, that include a manager, that include an agent, and all of those pieces work in concert for the benefit of an athlete, okay, who then get cleared by me and ultimately the accountant as well, and we work together. And guess what? There's a lot of margin that drops out of deals by the time you pay all of those people, as Josh said earlier. And so, you know, let's, let's take an example. Let's say some student athlete can generate a $100,000 deal from doing a whatever during college. I think that's pretty substantial given the market. That would be a massive deal. Well, take out 35% off the top for taxes, okay? Take out my fees. I don't want to say what they'd be, but they wouldn't be insignificant because of my expertise and what I do. And, and what advice what I do is to speak with those corporations and to make sure they're protected and work with their accountants. So I would wager, I would wager to say, a strong guess, by the time you pay taxes, 
your agent, your lawyer, your accountant, that might be 50000 Maybe. Let's be clear. We're hoping the athlete has all those components in place. And part of the fear of name, image, and likeness is athletes at the college level will not. That's exactly my point. Yeah. They will, they will not have those, those resources in place. And my, my genuine concern is that an athlete may get that $100,000 check and go nuts, and then they get to 1099, and the IRS goes, where's my 35 grand? And they go, what 35 grand? I thought I made 100,000. And listen, I'm not, I don't want to be disrespectful, but, but my daughter is in college, and she doesn't understand taxation. And, 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 and she's not making that kind of money, right? So she still relies on mom and dad. And so you have, when, you, when you introduce professionalism, and I'll mm-hmm. say that professionalism into the collegiate model, that means in every single aspect. If you are a new NBA player, you go to the Players Association, they have seminars. They teach you financial management, the value of a good lawyer, the value of a good account. They educate you. What do the colleges have? Is that on the NCAA? They're not a players association. I just want to what talk about the game plan right. you mentioned for NCAA too, because it triggers, and keep in mind, my background and representation is leagues, right? So I'm thinking about how a league would respond to this introduction and the difficulties they mm. have. And I go back to the competitive balance, because the, the fear is not that, uh, give me a college, I'm a big Badger football fan, Jonathan Taylor, premier athlete, one of the most productive running backs in college football history. The fear is not that Jonathan Taylor is going to get paid $15,000 to promote the local car dealership. It's the fear that he'll be paid $100,000 to promote over market so then they can go recruit the next athlete to come to that university and say, listen, our athletes are getting paid tons of marketing dollars to come here, so on and so forth. So it's not market mm-hmm. rate. Right. It's actually to sway recruiting to get better teams and so on. So the, it'll create more disparity back like to the MLB model. The Yankees, the Dodgers can sign whoever they want because they have the money. And all of a sudden, competitive balance is completely thrown out the window. And you already have that to a certain extent on facilities. And the money to money from boosters that build facilities to recruit athletes. Now, it's money going directly into the player's pocket that concerns the league as it stands and, and that competitive balance, I believe. Right. Just my no, I, I think it's an excellent point. And there's, there's, there's one other layer I want to I put in here, which is the, let's just say marketing agent. I'm even going to deal right now with the player agent. But the marketing agents, and what I mean by that, are those entities that are designed to go out and strike deals for people. So we can throw into that the CAAs, the WMG, IMGs, the Octagons, you know, you, you know the players, right? Their standard contract is quite comprehensive, if I'm being generous. And that is, in an, in an aspect, fair. So if, if let's just pick on CAA for a second. If they're going out, they're, they're taking an and they're promoting that individual to be a superstar, and they're putting the marketing dollars behind it, they should get paid on a lot of things. But the contract will say, we get paid on everything. Everything. And there's even a clause in their standard contract that talks about shares and units of a company that they get their cut of, right? And so, so think about if, you know, if this guy you know, does something with his roommate. Maybe he's rooming with some software genius. He's like, hey, I want to create a sports app. Would you do it? And they, they could get, guess what? CAA gets a cut of that deal under their standard model. Point is, the kids just aren't thinking through this. And, and, and again, we're introducing these individuals into a model that is not designed for them. Okay, can I tell you another fear that's yeah. about to about to occur if this goes through? Mm-hmm. And you brought it up, and the can of worms will be open with agents. 
agents will be able to get their claws into athletes at a very young age. Yeah. And what they're going to do, this is just my take, and I think this might already exist to a certain extent. They're going to say, hey, athlete, Joe, Joe Smith, here's $50,000. I'm going to represent you for life. And any money you make until you're 80 years old and die, I get 2% of. Because um, I'm going to invest in you up front. And guess what? A lot of those athletes need the money. Mm -hmm. Their families need the money. And they're not going to wait for the payday in the NFL or the NBA or MLB or whatever it may be. They're going to take that upfront money from the agent. The agent will have their claws in them forever. That could happen. And not only could it happen, that's a model. It is a model. Race car drivers do this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, because it is so expensive to be a race car driver, they will actually set up corporations and assign all the rights to the corporation and attract investors. And I have strong – this is not what this podcast is about, but I have feelings about that, but that's a thing. And that's the thing, by the way, I've, I've, I've spoken to drivers who had said, if I knew about that, I would have done it in a heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you're going to get, like I said, uh, players, athletes, families exposed early to a lot of pitfalls that they will not be ready for. And to Wes's point, the NCAA does not have a playbook, and I'm not blaming them. This is a very difficult, complex thing to tackle. And how you box this in is going to be extremely difficult, but it is inevitable to some degree. And, and so I'll, I'll add I'll add one more thing about that. It, we sounded like a lot of a doom and gloom. Listen, it's 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 here. Whether it's a patchwork of states or whether the NCAA is successful in getting some overarching federal model, which I think is the only way to do it. Our point in this in the last twenty minutes is to introduce the various issues and explain that you have to address all of this. Right? California, for instance, has just kicked kicked this wide open, kicked the door open, and said, "Deal with it." And I think that was incredibly irresponsible. And I think, frankly, showed a lack of understanding of this, the business of sport, but they did it. So now we all have to react and put mechanisms in place. And the problem is there is no framework right now for who, you know, whose responsibility is to take care of the players. One of the questions they answer today is, is it us? Is it the university? Mm -hmm. If it's the university, are they now employees? And I, I know that's it's kind of a strange question, right? And it, to me, it sounds like number 63 on the punch list, but it is a legitimate question. And, and, and the overall point is that we just, you know, like a bull in a china shop, rip this issue open without, without, frankly, respecting the complexity of the issue. And so now we urgently need to figure out what the plan is, what the overarching goals are, and work as a sports community to address it. Wes, I mean, you, you touched on if they're employees, now you can have a union. So they yeah, lost oh, the case in Northwestern. And maybe yeah. the answer here is they're yeah. allowing them to unionize. Let's get a CBA together and players are going to get paid. Now, then it gets real complex. Who does the union represent? Does it represent just the money-making sports? Does mm -hmm. it represent just the money-making athletes? Does it represent the, like I said, whatever team is out there, the field hockey team, the soccer team, traditional non-revenue generating uh, or revenue positive generating um for universities, the sports. I mean, it's gonna be really complex, but I think the union model may work. It's just who does the union represent? And who's gonna pay dues? And who's gonna fund this thing? And so on and so forth. And is the division three soccer player uh, yeah, part of this and are his dues? I mean, it just it's mind boggling complex in a hurry. Yeah. Uh, maybe they need good lawyers to take a look at this. <laughs> <laughs> so for yeah, sure. no, I mean, we could go on for hours about yeah, this. And, and there's a lot of conversation about this, but I think both Wes and I bring a very unique perspective to it because we come from professional sports and so we know what's about to come down the pipe so from the ncaa side they're becoming a professional league and they are to a certain extent based on the dollars that are coming in the media rights and so on and so forth but now you're introducing the athlete 
as a piece of the mix. So I look at it from a league perspective and how they're going to manage it, and it's completely... I mean, it's crazy trying to think about the application of the rules equally across all the institutions, all the athletes, all the divisions, so on and so forth. And I think from West Side representing the individual athletes and the complexities there. And this generally, we, we know how these deals are made, and there's not as much money as people think, but they're opening the can of worms they, that we all have to deal with. No, and that's that, that's 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 for sure. I mean, I echo everything you know Josh is saying, and that you know the the fun thing about this is if any were to kind of re-listen to this. You know, God bless you. First of all, I don't think uh, we've actually stated any law. We've not. There's no been no reference to statute or anything like that. This is business, right? Mm-hmm. This is this this legal issue is actually a business issue that is highly contextualized by by the law, and that's what's fun about it for for us being both business people and lawyers, and, and we did explain our full background, but both of us are fully full on business people as well, and that's what it takes to resolve these issues. You have got to have an eye on the business. How many times did I say strategic planning? I don't remember. Or but profit. I, or profit. Yeah. You know, yes, we can we can dive into various right of publicity law and and agent athletes act and all of that mm-hmm. stuff, but it's it's all predicated on a business model that I haven't heard articulated yet. What is our business model for this? Well that's weird. You you talk about the business model for the athlete and then I think about the league's governance of that business and model. I, no, I and agree. it's just like, it's both sides yes. have major complex issues to handle. And to reiterate Wes's point, whose job is it to handle it? Beats me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. It, it's obviously a really, really complex topic. So if, if any listeners out there have any questions, uh, they want to talk about this topic or another sports topic or even a business topic, please reach out to us. Uh, Josh can be emailed at josh.shab at gutweinlaw.com and Wes at wes.zirkle at gutweinlaw.com. Check out our website. Give us a call. Hope to talk to you soon. 